Today is week four in our series, Paul, Women and Wives, the role of women in ministry. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the more controversial passages within this debate. That passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. You may not be familiar with this passage, uh, so you'll see the controversy right off the bat. Here's what the passage says. It says, the women are to keep silent in the churches. Have a great day, guys. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's not, okay. Anyway, sorry. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Uh, like I said, that seems pretty controversial, doesn't it? Seems pretty controversial. Uh, well, since we're already kind of dealing with controversy, since we're already dealing with challenging issues, I'm just going to go ahead and keep my foot on the gas pedal for a little bit longer. Here's another controversial idea. Content without context is useless. Now let me, let me make that really controversial. Content, even biblical content, without context is useless. Psst, didn't Nathan just say the Bible is useless? Uh, if you don't read it in context, I am saying the Bible is useless. Ooh, interesting. Got some worshipers of the Bible. But it is an amazing thing. But if you do not read the Bible within its context, it is absolutely useless. As a matter of fact, if we don't understand the Bible in context and in its context, I would argue that the critics of the Bible are correct. It's an antiquated book, and it might be considered myth and hate speech if it's not read in context. Thankfully, uh, we know to read it otherwise. We know to read it correctly. Let me go a step further than that and say that something, uh, say something that I believe would be similar to what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and that is if the Bible is not something we seek to understand within its context, it's useless and you should just throw it away. What? Man, he's getting really pushy on the Bible. Okay, now that I've got your attention, now that I've got your attention, let me insert another important point. The Bible is not a magic book. Did you know that? The Bible is not a magic book. It doesn't affect your life because you recite it like an incantation. You don't get brownie points for owning one. <laughs> right? It is not going to be kept in your house. Keeping it in your house will not make you go to heaven. And it won't keep all the devils away. Trust me. You know how I know that? Because the devils know the Bible better than anybody in this room. I can assure you they know that word better. The Bible's value is truly unprecedented only when it is understood in its context. So again, here's the phrase that I want you to remember if you remember nothing else. Content without context is useless, even with the Bible. So why does content and context together matter, especially within the debate on women in ministry? Two reasons. Number one, because people matter. Can I get an amen? Because people matter. Dr. Heiser, Michael Heiser, says that bad Bible interpretation really can hurt people. And this is unbelievably true. I have seen bad Bible interpretation hurt many people in my life. I've seen it hurt their practice. I've also seen bad Bible interpretation hurt people to where they have a misconstrued view of God and they reject the faith altogether. 
and they just run the other direction. So people matter. Bad Bible interpretation really can hurt people. So that is why this is important. And when we talk about women in ministry, it is vitally important because most of the people getting hurt in this subject are women, right? So it's important to know that. The second reason this matters is because meaning matters. Meaning matters. Truth matters. At our core, church, we are a species of, 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 creature, of creature. God has made humans a unique species uh, that looks for and believes that there is objective meaning to life. We look for and believe that there's objective meaning. Uh, meaning of the things that we say, meaning within the things we say, meaning in the things that we do, meaning in the things that we write, and meaning in the things that we read. The very creation of language, our very creation of language, is a human attempt to join content and context in order to pass something on that's intelligible and meaningful. This is, at the core, why we actually don't like fake news. And I'm not talking about a political thing here. I'm simply saying the reason why we recoil, the reason why the world is pushing back against what is called fake news is because it's content, but it has no context, so it's fake. It's just garbage. And what does that fake news do? It pits us against each other. It makes us constantly want to fight. So let's define the terms content and context first. Content means the things that are held or included within something. So I think we all understand this uh, kind of instinct instinctually when it comes to a physical standpoint, the contents of a glass. If I have a glass of water, you understand what content is. It's the water. But this is also true when it comes to thoughts and ideas. So if somebody is writing a book, their included thoughts, their ideas are the content of that book, okay? Now, what's important is that that uh, content must be married with a context, and every author has a context. They know what they're saying. They know what they're trying to communicate. So that's what content is. It's what, what is contained within a vessel or an object. Context includes the circumstances that form the setting for a particular event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood or assessed. So context is, um, context is going to uh, give us the understanding. It's going to give us the meaning. Content is actually everywhere, church. Content is everywhere, but context is right there with it trying to give us explanation. If you ignore it, you will not have a right understanding. So when it comes to the Bible, it's, it's both a book of context and content. Although there are various types of context, I mean, they go on for days, guys. It's cultural, historical, rhetorical, biographical, on and on and on. And we're going to use all of them. But they all play the exact same role. They make the content, the words on the page, meaningful. So I'll give you an example of this before we get into 1 Corinthians 14. The example is found in Matthew 18, 20. Here's what it says. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. How many of you are familiar with that passage? Where two or more are gathered in my name. The context reveals what the content is actually about. Please, I encourage you to study this for yourself. But what you'll do when you do it is you'll find out that it has nothing to do with two common misunderstandings. 
Number one, it has nothing to do with God giving us whatever we ask for as long as two of us agree on it. That's not what the context is about. You know how I can prove it? Is there somebody in this room who will agree with me to pray for a million dollars? There's a lot of twos. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, give us a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. It's not about that. The context does not bear that out. The context also does not bear out the idea that God will grace us with his presence as long as we're not alone. Did you know that? The Bible is not telling this passage has nothing to do with small churches trying to justify a low attendance and saying, but two or more are gathered, God's here. God's with me everywhere I go. I'm good, right? He's with me. He's with you. That's not what this is about. The context is that of church discipline. If a case is established, the Bible is big on the witness of two or three people, right? So if a case is established against someone or even in favor of someone who has repented, then what the scripture says is that God backs up the witness. Where two or more are gathered in God's name, he is there and he is standing on the decision that's made. If you're godly, if the decision is made in a godly way, God will back up this idea. What's so interesting about examples like this and this particular example is that the context has been ignored for so long that it's almost impossible to correct people concerning what it actually means. So you say to people, guys, guess what? Where two or more gathered has nothing to do with just two people showing up. They're like, my truth. <laughs> my truth. I'll, I'll tell you what. It, no, it's not your truth. You're wrong. How about that? That would be really awesome if we could do that a little bit more. I guarantee you we won't see an end to this nonsensical interpretation anytime soon. Every small group in the world is going to be praying it. Where two or more gathered, there you are, Lord, in our midst. It's not what it's talking about. On top of that, we could talk for hours on why the right interpretation of the passage is truly important. But I don't have time for that one today. So let's get on with, uh, with our message. The example also illustrates a very uh, serious challenge within biblical interpretation. In the absence of context, church, you know what you do? You know what I do? We fill the blanks. We fill in gaps. This is, this is who we are as people. Alan Schlemmen from Stand to Reason, str.org, if you want to check out a fun website, communicates this perfectly. Here's what he says. Uh, he calls it a context vacuum. He says, when there is no context, your mind instantly fills the void with something from your experience. You instantly fill it. It's an automatic process. It's an automatic process for all of us. And I'm going to prove it here in just a second, right? Even though it is an automatic process, here's what we need to do. We need to train ourselves to break out of reading into the text something. Some of you are looking at me like, context, this is all kind of heady. What are we talking about? It's the same idea as assumptions, okay? And you know what they say about assumptions, right? So, so assumptions are really bad because when you're reading into something, you can be way off, Okay? So the same thing when you read a context of your own into something. How many of you have ever played the game, it's a word game called Mad Libs? The rest of you are to be pitied. 
This is just sad that you haven't done this. Okay, so here's what Mad Libs does. It, it creates a story. It's, it's the writing of a story, and you play your part in telling the story. So another person asks you, uh, there's a bunch of blanks within the story, and another person asks you to fill in things like nouns, verbs, and adjectives. Right? So you fill those things in, and they write them all down, and then you read the story with the weird things that you put together, okay? And what happens is it often results in a story that sounds mad, okay? You sound crazy, but it's also extremely funny, and it's even more funny when you have four children all under the age of nine. Like, it's just absurd, outlandish nonsense, right? Well, here's, here is my theory. Here is what I'm going to show you today. In the absence of biblical context, we do the very same thing. We fill in the blanks of our ideas with our ideas from our own experience and traditions and our own worldviews. But unlike the fun game that gets thrown away in the trash after a while when we're finished, the ideas that get read into the text of Scripture often get repeated uh, infinitum, right? What, forever. They're doctrines that get created, and then man-made laws get imposed on otherwise free Christians. This is how bad it gets. If you read it wrong, it becomes uh, ensconced in tradition, and then everybody begins to read it this way. Some have even uh, found their way into the creeds and the confessions of the church. So I'm just going to take a second and get myself in trouble here. I am no fan of creeds and confessions. I am not suggesting that they're wrong. I'm not suggesting that they need to be abandoned. I have a problem with creeds and confessions for a very important reason. Creeds and confessions tell people what to think. Did you know that? They tell people what to think. How many of you love the idea of your kids going to school and being indoctrinated? Right? Nobody's raising their hand. Why? Because you hate it when somebody is doing it uh, with which you disagree, right? If it's a person you disagree with, you're, uh, you're against it. But a creed does the exact same thing. You're, you, all you're doing is convincing someone what to believe. This is the same problem that I have found with, um, with catechisms. Here's what happens with catechisms. You present the questions and you answer the questions, you're not allowing the people who are learning to learn or to reason well. You say, what's, here's the question, what's the answer? Hold on, before you speak, here's the answer. Say it back to me. And it becomes rote religious nonsense. This is the problem with creeds and confessions. And sadly, many of the creeds have a lot of things just like this read into it. Bad context read into it. And then we have all kinds of foolish ideas that we just keep passing on. Because what are we doing? We're indoctrinating the next generation. We're not teaching them to think. You know what you should do instead of a catechism or a creed? You should teach them how you got to the conclusions you got to. And then you should allow your kids or the people you're teaching, you should allow them to challenge you. First of all, it'll humble you, <laughs> right? Second of all, it'll be great for your patience. And third, it may correct you where you are absurdly off. It may. You'll find that that happens, okay? So why do we do this? Why do we read into things uh, this context or fill a context void? The answer is very important. And it's sadly, uh, 
based on what I've just said, it's actually less nefarious than you might think. So I set up all this kind of negative talk to say it's, it's less nefarious than you think. Hear me, there are people who are trying to manipulate and twist the scriptures and do all this other stuff. I believe those people are few and far between. I believe that we have had false teachers since the day of Jesus, since before that, and they're not the majority of people, okay? I just want you to understand. You should watch out for them, but they're not the majority of people. The reason we fill context voids is because we are rational creatures who need to make sense of what's going on around us. Did you know that? I need to make sense of of the world around me. We need to make sense of what's being received, and we do so through one of our five senses. This is why we read our ideas uh, into the past. We weren't there, but we deeply need to understand them. Okay? So we read our ideas into the past. However innocent our attempts are, these ideas must be readdressed constantly. Not questions with automatic answers, but allowing people to reevaluate, reevaluate the ideas we have. N.T. Wright says that he believes that every generation should, should rethink the core beliefs of their, of their doctrines and their ideas. I agree with this. It's not because he thinks everything is wrong. It is because he wants everyone, and I would want everyone, to actually know what they believe and why they believe it. These are important matters, right? So uh, I say this a lot, but you need to know... Uh, You need to know if something is accurate. You need to know if something goes beyond possible, because all things are possible, and you need to know when things begin to be plausible. The only way you're going to do that is if you reassess the ideas you're presented with. You're only going to do that if you're reassessing things. So now, what we're going to do in 1 Corinthians 14 is we're going to play context Mad Libs, okay? And you're going to see what we read into things. And I hope to point out our problems. I hope to point out some of the things that we do on a regular basis. So we'll focus our attention on context, and we're going to do this context Mad Libs. I'm going to create the game and become a multimillionaire. It's going to be awesome. Anyway, nobody in the world's going to play it because it's a dork game, but I'm good with it, okay? So I've, I've placed a blank on the screen. I've placed a blank after every word that has baggage in the passage. <clears throat> These words come preloaded with our context, and so I want to talk through this, and then I want to go through a historical context and show you where we get this off. Here again is what the the text says. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. The women. Start there, the women. What do we read into this in our modern context? Well, let's just be polite. Let's just be kind. Let's just actually not try to twist the text here, not with any real uh, bad motive. Let's just say that what we're reading into this is that women are just like the women of this church. Women are educated, and they're equal with men. Let's just say that that is what is being said here. That's going to create a problem for us. It's going to create a problem because what it's going to say next is that educated, equal with, men, equal with men, women, are actually to shut up. That creates a problem, doesn't it? It really does. But that's what we would read into that. That's not what was going on here, and I'll show it to you in just a second. The second thing is it says they are to keep silent. What does that mean to all of you? 
Speak up. No talking. It means be quiet, right? I'm asking you not to be silent right now, okay? Right? What does it mean to you? Okay, so it means be quiet. So now what we have is the women, educated, equal with men, are to be absolutely quiet in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. What do we read into this? Sadly, churches all over this country and all over the world read into this, speak. What do I do? Speak. What is my job? Preacher. Women can't preach. That's I'm telling you that's the conclusion that they come to. Now, we are going to deal with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 in the coming weeks. And that is a much more difficult passage for us to contend with. But here, understand something. Teaching is not in the context. Women teaching is nowhere to be found in 1 Corinthians 14 in this way. Okay? So, but we read it in there, don't we? What we're doing is we're jamming our modern ideas into the text of Scripture, and then we're confused when it doesn't pan out. Okay? This is what we do. So the women, educated, equal with men, are to keep absolutely quiet, silent, in the churches. They are not permitted to teach, but are to subject themselves. What do we read into subject themselves? What does subjection mean to you? Be less than, right? Just crush them. This sounds real fun, right? So be less than. Or in this context, it's got to be under men, right? So we're reading this into everything that we're doing. So then it goes on and it says, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And what we read into that is some sort of express command in the Bible that literally says that. Surprise, there's no Bible passage that says that. <gasps> what? Why is Paul saying it then? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second, right? So we say, there's an express Bible passage. It tells us it's the Old Testament. It's got to be there. Nope. If they desire to learn, what do we read into learning? Being educated, right? So if they desire to be educated in anything, let them ask their own husbands. What do you read into own Logically, it's just not somebody else's, right? That's what you're reading into it. I'm going to argue that that's not what he's talking about at all. It's just a way of saying something, right? Not someone else's husband. Ask your own husband, right? And do it at home. It's, come very, it's become very synonymous with this idea. That's the woman's place, right? Home. Go make me a sandwich, woman, right? That's, that's what, Jerry, don't clap. Don't clap. Don't clap. I'm going to throw you under the bus in just a second, okay? Is that good? Okay. A place, a place, a woman belongs at home. If you want anybody to challenge you on where a woman belongs, please don't take preacher's word for it. Look at Proverbs 31 and tell me where that woman's location is. Because you ain't going to find a particular spot, right? That woman is... The real deal, <laughs> okay? So it's crazy how this works. And then we go on, and it says, they are to learn from their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak. Remember what we said about speaking, preaching, inside of the church. You know what we read into that? It's a building with chairs and rows facing a stage and a preacher who gives a 45-minute monologue while we're all waiting to go to a cookout afterwards. And that's not what church is either. 
that's not at least what their church was. So let's sum it all up. I want to sum it all up, and you're going to see it on the screen in bold yellow letters. Here's what some people read into the text of this. The educated equal to men women are to keep completely silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak in a preaching or teaching capacity, but to subject themselves or be less than all men, just as the law, some express command in the Bible, also says. If they desire to be educated or learn anything, they're to ask their own husbands and not someone else's at home where they belong. For it is improper for a woman to speak, preach, or teach in church, that building with chairs facing forward, and a stage where a preacher gives a monologue. By the way, guys, that's just what you would do in context Mad Libs. You read a bunch of your stuff into the text of Scripture. Is that possible as an interpretation? It is possible. Is it plausible? Not on your life. Not on your life. It is not plausible, and I'll show you why right now. Several points can be made from the immediate context, the context before and after the highlighted verse. The first point is that Paul's preceding instruction concerns order and the use of spiritual gifts inside the church. How many of you know that about 1 Corinthians, uh, gosh, 11 through 14 or 15? Right? So he's dealing, with, he's dealing with order within the church service. Similarly, in this verse, the women are instructed not to disrupt the service with their questions, but instead they're to ask when they get home. This should make us ask this question. Was Paul suggesting that women disrupting the service with questions was a universal application, a universal idea, meaning it, it applied to all churches at all times, or was it a specific issue he was dealing with in Corinth? Just like the misuse of spiritual gifts in Corinth, which he does not deal with in Ephesus or, or Colossae or Philippi. See, there are things that he wrote to. This is an important biblical uh, interpretation idea. When you read Corinth, guess who Paul wrote to? Corinth. Guess who he didn't write to? You. You. He didn't write to you. Did he write things that are applicable for us? Sure. It's all kinds of things. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. Sure, we need to do that. We need to understand that. We need to get our context, and we need to get the application that is universal, that does apply. In general principles, we need to do that. It's for us. Was it written to us? No, it wasn't. And so remember when you're reading something, it was written to a people who had an issue, and Paul dealt with it. And Paul wrote to them, and he, he said to them, you've got to fix this issue. The second thing that we see from the immediate context is that Paul was speaking to married women. This is always left out of this goofy argument and discussion in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul nowhere says that women, universal, are to remain silent. Did you know that? Not one place in the scripture. Instead, he's speaking to women who had husbands. Let's read that passage one more time. I just want you to read it. The women, what women, what quality of women are we talking about here? Watch what he does. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Well, you haven't told us who the women are yet. Yeah, he's not finished. If they desire to learn anything, who is they? The women he's talking about. Let them ask their what? 
their own husband. How do you get a husband? You get married. You don't want one if you're not, right? Okay, so, so the point is, you're married. He's talking to married women. So, if he's speaking to women who have husbands, he's giving them instruction because something is going awry with them. So if we're going to take these texts in this like absurdly literalistic way, then Paul has only prohibited married women from speaking in the church. If you're married in this room, raise your hand. If you're married and a woman in this room, and you're not even married. So anyway, if you're married and a woman, raise your hand. Come on, real high, real high. I never want to hear your voice again in this church. Is that no Dave McCarthy, right? That's absurd. Okay, so here's the deal. No pastor and no scholar on God's green earth believes that that's the interpretation. Yet we've manipulated it to say what we want, haven't we? And you know why? Because we're reading our context into the text. Therefore, the content of this text becomes utterly meaningless. It's not helpful at all. Because it's teaching us something that God did not say, okay? So there's more to the immediate context, but let's zoom in on uh, maybe some historical context and some background for this. So let's do this the right way. Let's talk about women. This is, a very, this is very different. What you're going to hear is very different from what we just read into this. Linda Belleville, uh, she's a scholar who pointed this out um, and was backed up by all of her colleagues, including the ones disagreeing with her about the main view, complementarian versus egalitarian. She said this about the history of women. Formal instruction for women stopped for most girls at the marriageable age of 14 in Greek societies. Guess what? It stopped from 16 to 18 in Roman societies. Greek boys, by contrast, continued their education all the way up into their 20s. And then, guess what? They didn't typically get married till they were 30. Okay, I want to paint the picture of what is going on in Corinth. You have 30-year-old men who are highly educated marrying 15-year-old girls who are uneducated and guess what they're going to have to do? Do a whole lot of explaining about life, aren't they? You think those women are going to have questions? I think they're going to have lots of questions. Do you think they're refined enough to know that in this new setting called the Christian church, where both men and women are equal and they can come in and sit together, they're not segregated, they're not pushed off into an elder court, where they come together, you think they're going to go, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is this about? Do you think they're going to know how to handle themselves rightly, right away? The answer is absolutely not. And guess what? Just that little bit of historical context all of a sudden makes our heads go, wait wait a second, why didn't anybody tell me that? They didn't tell you that because they don't want to read the real context. They didn't tell you that because it's really easy, nefarious or not, it's really easy just to read nonsense into texts. This is my world. Women are just like my mom, highly educated. She knows what she's doing. She knows what she's thinking. She knows her own mind. Strong woman. That's what it is. So therefore, when Paul says be quiet, you know what he's combating? Feminism. It's not in his brain, people. It's not in his brain. Why? 
Because we're reading a context, our context, into the text. Paul is speaking to where to this society where young married women are poorly educated, are now marrying highly educated men twice their age, and they're going to have a lot of questions. And in fact, in the asking of those questions, they're disrupting the celebration. They're disrupting the service. So what about the, the term silent? The women are to remain silent in the churches. The command for silent cannot be absolute. How do I know this? Well, the context of Scripture, in and of itself, it tells us. When you come together, Paul says, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction. There's teaching, by the way. A revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. That's chapter 14, verse 26. Had Paul intended to limit public involvement to men, don't you think he would have said it? I mean, he specifically says what he says here. Why wouldn't he say it then? He, he would have, right? Instead, what he emphasizes is that women and men alike were to contribute to the upbuilding of the church. And of course, there's an argument from 1 Corinthians 11.5 where women are prophesying, albeit with their heads covered, which we'll deal with, but there's this idea of their prophesying. You know you can't prophesy without speaking, right? So does the text of Scripture say that women should remain absolutely silent? It can't. Why can't it? It's an Absolute contradiction. Talk. Be quiet. What is happening here? None of that makes any, any sense. What about subject themselves historically and in right context? Remember Psalm 119, 160. That's our principle. The sum of God's word is truth. What does the Bible actually say about we, women being subjected? Number one, it's voluntary. Wives should subject themselves, themselves, to their husbands. It's voluntary. Second, it's to their own husbands and not men in general. You will not find one passage in Scripture where it says women are subject to men. Did you know that? It will say wives be subject to your husbands, but there is no passage for women to be subject to men. And then the third piece of this is that we're all supposed to be subject to one another. Ephesians 6.22 and 24, as well as 6.33, says, all y'all be subject to all y'all. You know what this does? It makes us serve each other. It makes us love each other. It shows us what life is supposed to be about prior to the fall, prior to sin and all the chaos that creates the division among people. Okay, how about law? What about this law that Paul is talking about? There's no such Old Testament law that Paul is speaking of. So what is he talking about? It's not meaningless, is it? No, it's not meaningless. This is a debate within the debate. Some scholars say that Paul is referring to rabbinic literature. Is that possible? Sure. Is it probable? Not as much. Why? Nowhere in Paul's writing does he, appeal, uh, does he uh, appeal to the wisdom of people. He often shuns it and says, I was called just by God alone. I don't care what these people say. It's just unlike his character. The problem, again, is Paul doesn't use this in his writing. It's also possible that Paul was merely referring to the creation order, right? So the creation order, this idea. But in order to do that, one, we have to read other things into the context that the creation order says God has created hierarchy. I don't know. 
We have to look at that. We have to study it, right? So that could be what he's talking about. It's supposed to be this way. You're supposed to submit. Both are supposed to submit. Which brings us back to the point from a second ago. The Christian ideal never removed submissiveness of a wife to her husband. Can, can you hear me? The Christian ideal never removes submissiveness of a wife to her husband. Instead, it expands it and calls both to submit to each other. All y'all submit to all y'all. That's what the point is. By the way, if you're new with us, that's not how the translation goes. But that's Nathan's translation, right? Okay, so what about learning? If we're not careful and we ignore the immediate context, we'll impose another contradiction for Paul. One that says Paul doesn't want women to learn in the church. And yet he says in 1 Corinthians 14, same chapter, verse 31, to all of the people there to learn from prophecies. So are the women not allowed to learn or are they allowed to learn? Is it from their husbands or not from their husbands? Like you see the problem when we read these things in weird ways? They are absolutely called to learn just like everybody else is. Craig Keener suggests that Paul is actually saying, if you can't learn something in church except the way you're doing it, which is loudly, then you need to ask your husbands at home. That is a right rendering or a more accurate, plausible rendering. The idea here is that there was some kind of loud disruption caused by people who don't understand what's being said and most likely what's being said was being said in a prophetic manner because if you look at Corinthians 14, that's the context. Okay, what about own husbands? Here's another way we read things out of context. Brings up um, what you emphasize inside of a sentence. Here's what the text says. Let them ask their own husbands at home. Now let's just emphasize some words and see how the meaning changes. Let them ask their own husbands at home. Do you see what just changed in your mind when I said own, emphasis own? It contrasted it to somebody else's husband that you keep asking, right? That could have been going on. Is that plausible? Sure, it's plausible. Let me change the emphasis though. Let them ask their own husbands at home. You see, the emphasis changed because now they were disruptively asking their husbands, but what they need to do is ask their own husbands where? At home and not cause a disruption. Do you see it? Do you see it? So these are all really important. You can, you can see how context gets, uh, in, gets imposed in a text by what we emphasize. Certain words, reading a context into the passage. So how about learning at home? What's this all about? A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about phrases having meaning. Ideas like cash on the barrel from Little House on the Prairie or, or your desire will be for your husband, Genesis chapter 3. What did that phrase mean in Genesis 3? It actually meant you will rule, you'll desire to rule over him. It doesn't mean you'll have googly eyes for your husband, okay? And we, we confirmed that by the context of Genesis chapter 4. Well, the phrase at home here is also something Paul keeps using. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 34. It says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Based on the context the order within the service is being disrupted, whether it's being disrupted by a communion uh, understanding or whether it's being disrupted by questions. He tells everybody to maintain order and peace in the service. If you're going to create problems, do it at home. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Because he's not saying sit down and shut up. 
What he is saying is, if you can't do it in an orderly fashion, well, we have a problem. It's causing a disruption, so do that somewhere else. Last, uh, last two are speak and church. Speak, uh, again, he's not talking about preaching here. I've already covered it, right? So we'll just quickly go through that. He's not talking about preaching. What about church? Several things are clear from the context here. Um, this is public worship setting. So whatever's happening here also includes that mutual admonition, mutual uh, psalm singing and hymn singing. All of that is part of this. So it would be a contradiction for Paul to say, don't do this and do this. It would be a contradiction. Nothing in their context was people sitting on a stage. How many of you seen The Chosen? The Chosen? You've seen that? How many of you are just not going to raise your hands for me today? Yeah, the rest of you. Okay, so fine. Anyway, The Chosen is a fun show, and I, I, I recommend it. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful, um, creative approach at what happens uh, in the Scriptures. But there are a couple things that, of course, all these things get right, and there are a couple things that all of them get wrong, right? One of the things that The Chosen gets right is this uh, story throughout season two that the women didn't learn with the men. This is true. Women did not learn with the men, especially in Jewish tradition. Here's what would happen. The boys would have to memorize Torah, and they would recite Torah, but it was not the same for women. So when you had a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah, it was not the same thing, okay? And tradition is showing this, history is showing this over and over. They didn't do the same thing. So in The Chosen, you see these women, full-grown women, that are like, we've never learned the Word of God, and we'd love to learn it. And so they are memorizing it as the apostles are, are sharing this Word with them. That is absolutely what the church came to do, to bring this into a transition. So The Chosen gets that right. Here's what the chosen gets wrong, and it affects context deeply. In, in one of the last episodes, Jesus is about ready to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And how many of you remember that famous painting of Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount where he has the blue sash, right? So that, that painting, they put a blue sash on him. They're like, we're going to get this right according to the Renaissance. Anyway, <laughs> and then English Jesus. But anyway, so whatever. So, so they've got Jesus. He's, on the, he's got this blue sash on, this white robe. And here's where, the, here's where they get it really wrong. All of a sudden, Jesus is getting ready to present the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do? He's backstage for the church service. And he's walking up from the backstage as the guys are looking at him and like giving him fist bumps and high fives, right? And then he walks through the curtain onto a rock stage while people are sitting in rows looking at him. Didn't happen. <laughs> Didn't happen at all. Didn't it happen? What is happening there? We're reading our context into their world. You know how Jesus did it? Jesus did it more like this. Hey. This is how Jesus taught. There were times when the crowd was so big that he had to get into a boat, but it, it's not there for modern church, okay? So context really does matter. And here is the other issue. When we keep letting popular things like this paint the context in the wrong light, people keep thinking that when the Bible talks about teaching situations, it's always like this. It was never like this. It was never like this. Even when Jesus walks into the synagogue, it says somebody hands him a scroll and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Was he the preacher that day? No. 
It just, church did not work the way we have made church work. Is this bad? Not necessarily. It creates problems, but it's not bad necessarily. But it's important that we read the, the context rightly and we get out of our head all the stuff that's going on. These churches met in homes, guys. These churches met in homes. And there was no gender separation in these churches. One argument that came about recently, it was the argument was popularized back in the 80s, and it was something like that the women were sitting in their own section and they would scream into their husbands and say, What did he say? What's he saying? This is painting the wrong picture of what took place in the church. There is no archaeological evidence of a separation in church settings in these houses. And there is no written evidence that shows that they segregated this way. Now, did time change and the you know, different church groups segregate? Yeah, that happened. But don't read that back into what took place in the first century church, right? There's nothing that supports this claim. But it doesn't matter. What we do know that supports it was there were disruptive questions being asked. And Paul is saying, listen, if it's going to cause chaos in the setting, in the meeting, go home. Talk about this at home. So is there, is there any way that we have a plausible idea or argument that Paul is saying, women should just shut up in the church? It's not plausible, guys. It's not plausible. So let's sum up this view. Here's what we would see in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. The undereducated married women are to keep silent. That is, they are to keep disruptive questions to themselves in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, which means an attempt to learn through an in-the-moment questioning. What's that mean? What's that mean? What's that mean? They are, subject, they are to subject themselves to their husbands, displaying a quiet, reverent spirit, just as the law also says, and now all should do. If they desire to learn anything concerning what has been spoken that was hard to understand, more specifically prophetic utterances, they are to ask their own husbands at home instead of disrupting the service, similar to participating in communion the wrong way or speaking in tongues without an interpreter. For it is improper for a woman to speak, that is to be disruptive inside the church. Paul was more concerned with order in the service than with an expression of a gift. So much so that he said to prophets, if there's another prophet that comes in, sit down and be quiet. That's a big thing if it's the word of the Lord. But he tells them to be quiet. Likewise, the command to remain silent is not absolute, right? It's about order in the service. It's not a universal ban on women speaking, Dave McCarthy. If we zoom out and look at the whole of the section, we can see that the theme was order in worship. Now, it's easy as a 21st century, this is how I want to close, it's easy as a 21st century American to look back at this passage and view it as restrictive, right? Can you see why people think it's restrictive? It's a no-brainer, right? But from Paul's view, looking forward, not only was he allowing women's inclusion in the church body, but he was promoting their education when he encouraged them to ask their husbands questions at home. Remember the Jewish girls? No, we're not reading the Torah to you. We're not teaching you these things. This was a change in life. He didn't just leave it, be silent and don't ask questions. He wanted to have their questions and he wanted those questions answered. Is it possible to render it this way? Sure. Is it probable or plausible? Very much so. 
is my assessment that that is the, the best or uh, the most accurate way of rendering this. Church, we live in a, um, a clickbait, fake news, sensationalist culture, don't we? Right? You know what that actually means? It means we're a generation that loves to spread content without context. That's what we love. We love to post this one line that just infuriates people so that they'll click on it and find out what they're supposed to be mad about, right? This is what we do. And why do we do it? Because we're attracting attention. We want more people to our website. We want more people to our church. We want more people to listen to us. And guess what our problem is? We keep falling for this crap, okay? We want more people to do it. And why do we want more people to come to our website? Because it's ad revenue, <laughs> right? It makes us more money. So here is the trick to making more money. Post content with no context. You will be rich. Here's the way to be a good Christian. Don't do that. <laughs> Here's the way to be a good Christian. Don't do that. Here's the way to be a good Bible interpreter. Don't look for content that, that just backs up your point where you read your context into everything. Slow down, study the text, find out what was happening in the background. Learn what is being said. Otherwise, what did Dr. Heiser say earlier? Bad Bible interpretation hurts people, doesn't it? Bad Bible interpretation hurts people. It hurts people really bad in this subject. So I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to wrestle with the context of the passages that you read this week. I want you to wrestle with the context of that passage. And next week, we're going to be dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to wrestle with it hard because it is hard, okay? But listen, if you understand this well, you are going to get somewhere in your Bible interpretation. And if we as a church understand this well, we are going to get somewhere where everybody in this church plays a very important role in the life of our body. Amen?